Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Santosh, there's been a lot of weird stuff going on in the last week, at least in the world of research. <laughs> I've, been, I've had my head buried in papers. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been a little odd. There's actually something we can't really talk about in our podcast without us totally geeking out because it has to do with like glycosylation of RNA. Um, but yeah, there's been there's been this, this interesting, cool little bloom of actually very weird and simultaneously super interesting discoveries that have recently been published. The kinds that don't make you say, hmm, or Eureka, but more like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not even but, and not even in the oh, you know, scientists have proven that polar bears are left-handed or ants prefer to line dance to country music. No, I mean just the kind of thing you're like, wait, what? We could what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where you want to believe them, you're pretty sure that they're saying the right thing, but it seems so out of left field. There, there's a little bit of a component of why did you ask that question? Like why? <laughs> Where? Because that's the that's the genesis of all of this, right? It has to it has to start from a scientist going, I wonder why, and then inquiring a little bit further, going, I, I'd like to try to solve this particular mystery. So, for example, the flamethrower. <laughs> I'd like to set that on fire, but it's just yeah. too far away. Oh, <laughs> yeah. None, none of our stuff is as uh, genocide as that. But <laughs> yeah. Have you ever operated a flamethrower? You're not getting very far. I mean, those tanks run out of fuel real fast. No, no, with I, absolutely 
zero experience in it, if anyone's asking. Nothing suspicious. Don't even worry <laughs> about it. Let's move on to this week's topic. <laughs> it's going to be one of these days where it's like, did you know that plutonium is actually not all that hot? And you can handle it for a short while in your hand. <laughs> What, Josh? <laughs> Uranium has zero calories and comes in the form of a breath mint. What? So, yeah, for those of you saying, wait, what? At home, good yeah. news, you've reached an alternate week. And that means we found the theme for this week's Journal Club. Journal Yay! Club! Woo! Yeah. Uh, for newer listeners... I recommend you throw up your hands in the air and wave them around like a Muppet, uh, as if you care quite a lot. Yeah, especially now that we're starting to congregate again. Although I, I will say, I think the CDC got a little enthusiastic in some of their recommendations <laughs> regarding, <laughs> regarding mask timing. Uh, it's it's so tough. You know, I really I really feel for our uh you know, the the scientific community that is tasked with making these kind of recommendations because they have to sit on this weird cusp of this is the right thing to do as long as human beings aren't too too crazy. And then they have and to then take they have that to second stop back and be like Wait a minute. Yeah. We're human <laughs> beings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is. They they have to take something which would be perfectly reasonable. Like if you have certain parameters, everybody's vaccinated in one area. It, the you know the number of people in the indoor area is still relatively sparse, and people are still kind of spaced out. No one has been sick lately or has a positive contact. Now you can unmask, and the entire world takes that as so long suckers <laughs> roaring 20s let's all socialize with wild abandon i'm just gonna run around licking things smearing my face up ever comes in its range no no we didn't say that we didn't say any of that too late no take backsies <laughs> no take backsies <laughs> there's nothing for me to take back <laughs> as they slowly shake their head yeah i feel for them i know exactly where we're at you know we're supposed to be allowed to unmask in in you know very kind of restricted limited settings but i i do understand that like the science fits but how you put it to the public and how the public responds is a completely different game well also i think it's they're like hey people with people who have been vaccinated can do everything while the rest of you who haven't been able to or haven't decided to are still only allowed to you know shout at each other through windows uh from very tall buildings <laughs> across the way and overnight magically everyone suddenly became around the country instantly vaccinated <laughs> and asking Asking, look, a group of six-year-olds to operate anything on the honor system is hard enough. Asking an entire country to do it. Uh, however, yeah. however, yeah, Santosh, mm. you did run a couple, you did run across a couple of case reports this week that might encourage at least half of the population to uh, be more <laughs> vaccine compliant. I, I think we could hit about 50% 
of folks, especially in the age range that we're targeting. Um, I, I want to just really quick about vaccine hesitancy, because this is a little complex. I don't think it's fair to be like, oh, there's a bunch of anti-vaxxers out there. I don't think that's true. There are lots of people who are concerned about, hey, is this really safe? Is it effective? And they're worried. And a lot of them, by the way, are people who have been mistreated by medicine in the past. So um, African-American descent, um, and if they are of Hispanic descent, I completely understand. But there are other people who are just like, hey, I got too much to do in my day. I don't, I can't be bothered. Like, I don't care if I get vaccinated or not, but I just can't, like, make that 30-minute trip over to wherever. Well, would you get vaccinated for $100? <laughs> now that's a good incentive. That's an excellent incentive because we started with donuts, right? <laughs> a lot of us. You're right. You know, we got, I escalated yeah. too quickly. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Doctor J. <laughs> you just you went from Krispy Kreme to like straight broke. <laughs> It was, it was, but that age group right in there. So the folks who are busy, they're working, you know, professional, semi-professionals, white collar and blue collar workers, you know, how do you get those people? And especially as they know that they're not as vulnerable as the elderly and everything, but they're super important to get vaccinated, to actually halt transmission of the virus. So now how do you capture them? How do you capture that group of healthy virile young people well i guess if <laughs> donuts don't work and money doesn't mm. work you could mm. always threaten their genitalia <laughs> i i think you escalated a little too fast again what is with you today? You can't go Krispy Kreme, a hundred dollars, Lorena Bobbitt. You can't. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> Just baby steps. <laughs> Pace yourself. How about you warn them of the existence of the yeah. dreaded, but I'm sure hilariously named for comedians, COVID penis? Yeah, yeah. This is. It's kind of cool. We can do COVID penis. This is a little bit like trying to get the same folks to not drink as much, right? Binge drinking and you get that old, what do you, what do you call that? Whiskey dick, mm-hmm. right? And so this is the same kind of thing. Hey, this may not happen, Well, but, you it's, know, it's, this is a real complication if you get sick from COVID. It's rather a little bit more permanent than than alcohol-related performance issues. Uh, well, this is based on two different case reports, which, Santos, you can fill us in on the details. You want to go ahead and I told you so? Is that what you're going for? I would never. But <laughs> I have. I, as long as you're bringing it up, I believe it's been a standing uh, <laughs> argument on this show that there is uh. a vasculitic component. Well, okay, okay, okay. The argument was whether or not there's actually viral invasion into those blood vessels versus whether it is purely inflammatory, meaning that there isn't viral inflection, infection into the, into the vascular endothelium, into the actual blood vessel cells, but actually the global inflammation that goes on you know, hits those medium-sized blood vessels, for instance, like the coronaries in the heart, 
you know, where it causes those uh, temporary aneurysms with Miss C. And yeah, you come at me with like, you know what? There's ACE2 on those cells. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there have been time and time again, seeing little virions in the biopsy samples of those those blood vessels. Right, <laughs> so right. So why like isn't any it? true yeah. scientist, you have remained <clears throat> skeptical in the oh. face of all my apparently wild, unsubstantiated <laughs> claims. Uh, so, yeah. so why don't you walk me through this case report and uh, prove me wrong again? <laughs> God, sometimes you take you just you you're sucking the joy out of this. No, 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 no. <laughs> Tell me how wrong I am. This was supposed to be a fun, light-hearted romp through viruses and penises. <laughs> <laughs> Can't believe you're doing oh, this. Right. Oh, I'm sorry. Was I jerking you around? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to make it so hard for you. That was a real boner on my part. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to go to the land of penises, Josh. We're going to go down to Miami. So, and we're going to go down to a, a very amazing department of urology at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. Um, and the group over there, along with the B- Department of Pathology at the same University of Miami, came in and they said, hey, you know what? We've been having quite a bit of episodes of erectile dysfunction going on. You have patients who are coming in for elective uh, help with erectile dysfunction, putting in mechanical pumps um, and other devices to help them when basically all of the other medical and behavioral interventions have failed. Well, while you're in there and you're doing this urological surgery, you're going to take biopsy samples anyway. And we now have folks who are COVID positive and they are COVID negative. And you can find that out by PCR and you can find that out by antibody. So why don't we do something really, really simple? Uh, why don't we prove Santosh wrong and Josh right? Uh, because I'm firmly of the belief that they did this just so that you could, you know, rub it in my face. And not so. <laughs> because I paid off a bunch of scientists to conduct a study. Yeah, exactly. Right. So these folks, what they did is it, it's a really small pilot study. They, they went in and they were doing a uh, penis pump implantation on two men who had never had COVID and two men who had had COVID And both of them were coming in with a complaint of erectile dysfunction. Uh, These were a a little bit older men, as you might expect. I I think the median age was uh, 60-something or maybe 70-something. Here we go. 65 to 71 years old. And they were all of Hispanic origin. So we had a little bit of a control on the age group and the ethnicity or the ancestry so that we could kind of keep those as controls. And then they said, okay, we're going to explant a little bit of tissue from the corpus cavernosum. That's the erectile tissue that floods with blood when you know you need to get an erection or when you want to get an erection or when you have to get an erection. They went ahead <laughs> the corpus and did... cavernosum when you have to get an erection. <laughs> 
That's it. The ad, the ad campaign for the Carcass Tavern Ocean is done. Just... I don't know if they needed to advertise. <laughs> when you have to have an erection, <laughs> count on the Corpus Cavernosum. <laughs> These folks, what they did was they went ahead and first of all, they did pre-op screening on everybody to make sure that they were COVID negative 24 hours before their operation. Okay. And then they went in and they explanted the tissue from all four men. So you had two people who were COVID negative and two people who were COVID positive. And then they ran uh, immunohistochemical staining on the, uh, the samples that they found, along with doing electron microscopy to go get down to the level where you could actually see viral particles and visualize whether or not these particles were present. And Josh, this is where you get your told you so. Where were they, Santosh? Yeah. (laughs) Don't keep us in suspense. So the ultrastructure features of the penile tissue (sighs) clearly showed 100 nanometer diameter coronavirus-like spiked viral particles seen clearly by transmission electron microscopy in the perivascular erectile tissue of the patient. Suck it, science! (laughs) Yeah, those are the words I'm sure you're meant to use. (laughs) Yeah, I I think this is is very fair. There was perivascular inflammation, and that part we totally understood, that there were inflammatory cells that that were there in the blood vessels, no matter what blood vessels you looked in, whether it was, you know, up by the heart, penis, extremities, whatever it was, there was an interesting added uh, finding on this one. They were also examining for endothelial nitric oxide synthase. So this is the enzyme that's responsible for, uh, you know, creating that NO, right? That that nitric oxide, which is that vasodilator. Um, that also, it makes for... uh, the cars go really fast and furious. No, that's a, that's nitrous. that's nitrous oxide stop it no nitric oxide is one of the signals that's used in our blood vessels to tell the musculature and the kind of the wall of the the blood vessel to expand to allow more blood flow to whatever organ you have it there so they did staining of the samples with covid negative and covid positive tissue to look at the amount of endothelial nitric oxide synthase. And this was just kind of qualitative, but the the, the patients that were COVID negative had much more intense staining of ENOS. So it seems like they had a different pathology going on um, than the folks who had had COVID where you know, the tissues literally were not making the enzyme that, you know, sent the signal to, you know, to, to actually allow those blood vessels to the, engorge and have blood flow into the penis. The takeaway so, is that uh, as a result of being infected with the COVID virus, these men of a certain age lost the ability to create and maintain erections without assistance, uh, without pharmaceutical assistance, and Mm -hmm. 
even more disturbingly, it appears to be permanent. Yeah, that's the tough thing because these folks were coming in, you know, the whole reason that the <clears throat> that the tissues were being harvested was because this was part of a urological procedure to put in like a mechanical erection device because they, you know, they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it with Viagra because for Viagra to work, you need ENOS to be intact. They couldn't do it with behavioral interventions, nothing. They, this was, you know, the, so the last stop. For all of you who feel that you're still strong enough and tough enough that the virus isn't going to affect you, I guess my question is, do you feel lucky, punk? Well, <laughs> do you? Yeah, this is something, and <clears throat> it could be younger people, it could be folks who, uh, you know, yeah, you have risk factors, you don't have risk factors, but you know, hey, your penis works, no. and then your penis don't work. I do want to add one thing, though, that's that's actually important for this. These two men um, actually had relatively mild uh, disease. There was one of them had a 14 day hospitalization, so they got sick and they needed O2. But the other, the other guy, um, had, you know, just like stay at home, couple of days of fever, cough, body ache. So it isn't like these guys got severe COVID where they had like blood clots and strokes and all these kind of things. Right. So again, two cases does not mm -hmm. a rule make. However, mm -hmm. Given the subject matter, I would think it is well worth it to just go get one quick shot in the arm and have peace of mind. <laughs> yeah, so right now we've racked up about... Th this is, by the way, the, f the first pilot study to show that you've got long-term sequelae in the penis after COVID-19. But... <clears throat> The, we've got about 15 like kind of case reports and, uh, you know, uh, studies going on right now. If you look in PubMed, uh, my favorite one, Josh, the, the, uh, the title of it is mask up to keep it up. That'll be a fun public health <laughs> campaign. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, Sorry. all right. Let me go back to trying to negotiate. So you said start, start slow, right? So yeah, yeah, would, yeah. You get, would you get a vaccine for a donut? Well, sure. that brings us to our next story where donuts also helped, at least in part, with, uh, well, diagnosing cancer. But how, <laughs> how am I going to Kevin Bacon that as people <laughs> as people rush out to Krispy Kreme? Wait, I can get a vaccine <laughs> and diagnose cancer? <laughs> Exactly. Wait, what? It's like the weirdest mashup. <laughs> I, I, it, it makes for a very weird combination. Shut up and eat your donut. <laughs> so All right. yeah. in another story or in a story coming out of Japan and yeah. tell you that in Japan, they love their bakeries. Okay. Mm. And it, the bakery is not just, oh, here's your donut or here's your cake. The big treat in Japanese bakeries is the variety of things. Uh, you know, a bakery offering 100 items will sell twice as much as one selling, you know, 20 or 30 items. So just 
window shopping in a Japanese bakery is a delight. And there have been a number of companies that have done research on this to sell more, and they discovered that naked pastries, woohoo, scandalous, sitting in open baskets, sold three times as well as pastries that were individually wrapped because they appeared fresher. But this is okay. going to be problematic if you're a worker in a Japanese bakery. Why? Hundreds of pastry types and no wrappers and therefore no barcodes. So, so you're not the owner or the baker who actually knows what all these pastries are and how much each of them costs and everything. You basically, I guess you'd have to memorize all of them so that you could quickly check out all your customers or you'd have to like shout for the back every single time you wanted to know the price of these things because it's not in one of those nice little boxes with a barcode. And then you have to individually wrap it and be super polite on top of it because this is Japan. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, courtesy matters. Now, because it's also Japan, they said, all right, if we can't make it cute, can we make it automated? Those are the two development pathways <laughs> in that country. I'm, sure, I'm almost certain there's more than that, but I'll, I'll go with it because this works really, really well. Everything yeah. in Japan ends up either cute or automated or both. Or both. Yes. <laughs> you can have automated cuteness for sure. Hello Kitty mechs. <laughs> Or Hello Kitty Gundams are mere years away. Um, <laughs> but in in the case of the bakeries, they started looking into deep learning and AI. And a particular company um, called Brain, using uh, <laughs> an AI called AlexNet, because as we've said, scientists are great at naming, started, <laughs> started making a more nuanced AI that could differentiate in between different kinds of pastries, things like eliminating shadows cast by donuts into a donut hole, or okay. looking at the bake, the amount of how baked something is to color. And they spent about five years after having developed, you know, a more traditional route AI uh, for modeling and sim and simulations, they spent five years immersed in bread, and they built a device that could take pictures of pastries sitting on a backlight, analyze their visual features, and distinguish everything from a ham corn to a carbonara sandwich to a curry donut. Cool. Okay. How does this in any way, shape, or form relate to medicine? <laughs> Well, I, I'll go ahead and say that this is kind of vi computer-based visual learning or visual identification. We've been doing this for a long time with microscopic things and trying to, you know, rather than a, a human being identifying something by its microscopic features, actually seeing if if a uh, image recognition software could do it? Is it something like that? Well, it's funny you mention that, Santosh, because in early okay. 2017, a doctor at the Louis Pasteur Center for Medical Research in Kyoto saw mm -hmm. a television segment about this bakery scan. Um, you know, he was just watching local news like, oh, and now in your local bakery, your donuts and croissants are sorted by, you know, automation, whatever. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and he thought to himself, cancer cells under a microscope look kind of like bread. <laughs> yeah, this is something we learned in med school pathology, right, Josh? That like all the pathology stuff was food related. Oh, right? yeah. I don't you know. Your if... blueberry muffin babies, your marble rye tumors. Yeah. You know? <laughs> 
when you're healing, you get granulation tissue because they were thinking of like the granulated sugar. Um, if you get a big bleed into an ovary and it, it congeals a little bit, they call it a chocolate cyst. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, so, so it was not a stretch that a pathologist would be thinking about food. Right, absolutely. <laughs> so this guy said, cancer cells look like bread, and he contacted Brain. And so I said, pathologist contact Brain. You sounded like you just went through a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> he said, thing look like bread, he called Brain. <laughs> the company, what happened to Dr. Josh? <laughs> yeah. does, does things smell like toast to you? No, the company agreed to begin developing a version of bakery scan for pathologists, and this was mm. under the the reasoning that they had already built a framework for finding interesting features in images, whether it's ridges in a pastry, a hole in a donut. You know, they'd allowed they'd built tools to allow human experts to give the program feedback. So now, instead of identifying powdered sugar or bacon, they could look at like a urinary cell and identify and measure the nucleus, the cell's diameter things like that. And it seems to work. And and part of this, you know, is the how fast the system can adapt. A Japanese bakery might introduce a new pastry variety every week. Think about that. You carry 100 oh, yeah. different kinds of pastries and you're introducing 52 new ones a year. You now you can look at an entire slide of cells in one go instead of cell by cell, you put the slide in and it says this is suspiciously cancerous, definitely cancerous, not cancerous, by treating it like, oh, okay, we say good cells are croissants, or bad cells are Wonder Breads, or maybe <laughs> cells are other ones, and it and it basically sorts them. You have whole slide analysis. Now, Santos, you're a bench researcher. How, yeah. how impressive is whole slide analysis? Pretty amazing. Uh, so whole slide analysis is something that's quite a bit of a departure from what we'd usually do. So the previous image recognition algorithms actually tried to scan down to individual cells or maybe like a few cells at a time to look at the very local microstructure. And of course, immediately, like this is really difficult, right? Because a cell looks really different in context. It may look, you know, these exact same population of cancer cells, but clumped up in one way versus looking another way, you know, trying to look down to the size of the individual cell, it's really, really difficult. We were making progress, but that was the big problem that even identical looking individual cancer cells looked really different in context. Whereas something like sheets of tissue can look very much the same when you're trying to compare, you know, two different cancer samples of the same type of tumor or malignancy. So this is, it's a whole different kind of approach. And I'm excited to see, it's almost like a competing type of technology. Yeah. So it looks at things like color and tone of the nucleus, density of genetic material, all things which an actively dividing cell, such as a cancer cell, would have in different components. So uh, to quote the, the creator, like bread, just like bread. <laughs> It's come full circle that the pathologist named everything after food because everything looked like food to them. And so now they have a thing which understands 
how to recognize foods going back and looking at pathologies. Cancer cell bread. I talk to brain. And now, <laughs> bakery diagnosed cancer? Hey. <laughs> you, you don't have to do this, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now bakery diagnosed cancer. <laughs> oh, pull the stick out of your behind, Santosh. Yeah. <laughs> Because oh, oh, oh god damn it I missed it oh you got me yeah you got it <laughs> even out of my upper intestines perhaps because in another study also coming out of Japan wait what animals can breathe or some animals can breathe through their butts don't try this at home kids. <laughs> Well, I mean, ultimately, we want to see if we can maybe do this at home. <laughs> so, Wasn't there well, a South this, Park episode about that? Well, no, that was eating through your butt. So what happens when you breathe through your butt? You know, I, I can't yeah. imagine you'd want to do this casually. It seems like something that would just happen in emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> this is very So we don't really... We weren't supposed to have the anatomy to do this, whereas other animals can. So we have animals like sea cucumbers and even up to some vertebrates like catfish, where they have cells and tissue interfaces with just the right type of you know, absorption and gradient across the cells and everything. And then the ability to get oxygen from the outside to the inside to the bloodstream where they could breathe through various tissues, not just their gills, but they could take in, you know, some form of oxygen in the case of our fish friends, it's from water and actually breathe through the anus. <laughs> well, no, okay. My, Whatever. My, I don't I do, care. Gosh, our choral teacher would love this. Remember when they say, I want you to take a deep breath. <laughs> I didn't know they meant like this. <laughs> oh. Now, it's, yeah. it's nice that fish can do this, but let's get yeah. into the real uh, human analogs, mice and pigs. Because yes. <laughs> well, and, and pigs much more so than mice, because now you have something that's very much like a human. I'm not sure if I'm offended by that. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's hard to spell things up from mice, but if you if a pig can do it, the chances are we have a shot. You hear that, pigs? We're coming for you. <laughs> we can achieve anything you can do, we can do better. Uh, <laughs> But in a study in May, in a study in the journal Med, uh, published May fourteenth, they found that both rodents and pigs share the ability to use their intestines for respiration. So it's not just the butts; it's yeah, uh, yeah. the whole the whole intestine. Um, <laughs> I'm using my whole ass. <laughs> it's not it's not half assed. That's that's it's the not half assed. <laughs> so yeah. so researcher Takebe and his collaborators, you know, his et al, uh provide yeah. 
evidence for intestinal breathing in rats, mice, and pigs. So first, they had to design an intestinal <laughs> gas ventilation system. <laughs> now, to be sure here, Josh, we already know that gas can go across the intestinal blood interface. So we know very that much instance, diplomatically phrased better than we already know <laughs> gas comes out the butt. No, no. Well, so you, you know, you do have gas that's generated by, you know, various cellular processes and our cells and bacteria, you know, that's why you fart and you create flatus. But the reason why, even if you eat like a gassy meal that you're not going to just fart a whole bunch of gas is because we are able to transfer some of that gas, you know, through our intestine into the bloodstream. So we know that it is an interfere where, sorry, an interface where we can have gas exchange. That's already well known. So let's talk about gas exchange. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Researcher Takebe designed, he intubated their, their buttocks. Um, he did. Well, he had to scrub them first. Well, yeah, you don't want to stick a tube into dirty buttocks. No, no, that's not what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what I mean. They actually, they started out, because if you wanted to do gas, they had to do something called uh, an intestinal scrubbing to actually thin the mucosal lining so that you could have more efficient gas exchange. So not just taking... Well, that was out. for researching purposes, because essentially he exposed them to low oxygen conditions, ventilated with the tubes up there behinds and unventilated and Mm. even the ventilated ones on different oxygen levels. And without having a tube in your butt pumping oxygen in and no other access to air, no Mm -hmm. mouse survived more than 11 minutes of extremely low oxygen conditions with a tube up their butt pumping breathable air into them, into their intestines, more oxygen reached the heart, and 75% of the mice survived just about an hour of normally otherwise lethal low oxygen conditions. So proof of concept is there. Um, Now, don't get too excited, folks. (laughs) Because as you might imagine, this did require some abrasion of the intestinal mucosa so it's yeah. unlikely to be clinically feasible and probably even a first choice among patients. But if we do reach a point where somebody can't be intubated because of anatomy. Uh, so- or if their lungs are actually not working. Mm-hmm. So if they have something like like COVID where their lungs are shot and they're not able to perform gas exchange across the alveoli in their lungs. They have also been developing a liquid-based alternative using oxygenated chemicals. So essentially a oxygen enema, (laughs) which is really cool. I mean, (laughs) the cool thing about this, so they used a a fluid with pressurized oxygen. So these are called perfluorocarbons. And so the fluid itself can carry a large amount of oxygen. The neatest thing about using the fluid, Josh, is that in this case, they did not need to do the intestinal scrubbing. So that was actually going one step further where they didn't have to do that, really that intestinal thinning, which itself can be dangerous, right? You can perforate the intestines and that's it, you're dead. So in this case, the fluids were really, really fantastic because they got near the same result, but 
they didn't need to like scrape out uh, the intestinal lining and stuff. And yeah, they, they oxygenated the animals using this, uh, this O2 fluid per fluorocarbons. Which was so impressive and so rapidly successful in animal models that with support from the Japan Agency for Medical Research and Development, uh, mm-hmm. in order to combat the coronavirus disease, the researchers are basically applying to expand their preclinical studies and simultaneously pursuing steps to accelerate the path to clinical translation and testing. So they do actually want to start uh, pumping ventilators up your behinds as soon as possible, which (laughs) would alleviate a lot of the demand for ventilators, probably for a variety of reasons. (laughs) It makes me think of that Futurama episode where Zoidberg comes up and is like, I have to take your temperature. And he brings out this huge thing and Fry goes, wow. And he opens his mouth and Zoidberg's like, yes, again. (laughs) Well, I hopefully as with many other, you know, anesthesiology procedures or, or if you get intubated, you you know, you'd be sedated. (laughs) You'd be out so you wouldn't feel so uncomfortable during this time. But Josh, this is really cool. We know that there are phases of disease, as in with COVID and a couple of other diseases where if you allow the lungs enough time to heal, right, and you're not applying that barotrauma, which is actually the um, the the trauma that pressure causes to the lungs by do, using a ventilator by trying to like mechanically shove oxygen through the lungs. If you can find some way to spare the lungs and give them a chance to heal, a lot of the time they'll bounce back. But you have to give them that chance. Right now we have very dangerous stuff, right? Like we have ECMO, where we take out the blood and put it through a mechanical oxygenator and a carbon dioxide scrubber. And, you know, we have infection with it and you have to open up the chest and all these kind of things. Imagine if we could just like breathe through the ass for a while, you know, and you know, you like you ass breathe for three days and that's it. You're, you're healthy, you're oxygenated, your lungs kick up, boom, you can uh, start to use the ventilator a little bit, wean down the vent, patient goes out of the hospital and, you know, oxygen enema saves the day. That world couldn't possibly be real, Santosh. You must just be <laughs> blowing smoke up my arse. <laughs> Segway. The idea that you could essentially resuscitate people uh, anally <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. is not yeah. new. I know no. you're thinking it's a very modern concept. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, this predates Japanese researchers and presumably social media and TikTok challenges. Um, <laughs> Although they could have been doing this in Japan as well as, you know, in, in London where this well, was. <laughs> back in the late, back in the late 1700s, uh, blowing smoke up people's rectums was a mainstream medical procedure. Um We've talked about this before. In fact, yeah. it was believed to be able to be helpful to resuscitate people who were otherwise presumed dead from drowning and was such mm-hmm. a commonly used method for drowning that the equipment in this procedure was hung alongside major waterways like AEDs. 
So it would just be hanging wow. out by the River Thames. Oh, here's a little bellows. Blow smoke up a drowning victim's behind. And it was mm-hmm. equipment provided courtesy of the Royal Humane Society, uh, sure. such that people frequenting waterways were expected to know the location of this equipment, just like AEDs. So okay. it worked pretty similar to our last story, where each kit came with a little bellows, like you'd see at a uh, forge, not that size, mm-hmm. but you know, a handheld uh, accordion for your butt. And smoke would be blown up the rectum by inserting a tube, which was connected to a fumigator. And that forced smoke was supposed to heat the chilled <laughs> interior of a drowning victim and reinflate sure. the lungs from the air because you know all the water went down your mouth and you can't get air past that water. But if you come from the opposite end and everybody knows hot air rises, so you put <laughs> hot air in... Hey, hey, this was scientific <laughs> method. I, back I get day. it. I get it. I get it. Yes. Uh, so sometimes you could you know, force smoke into the nose and mouth, but most doctors felt the rectal method was more effective. Oh, and they used tobacco smoke because the nicotine was known to stimulate the heart to beat stronger and faster, encouraging respiration. I love it because... I right now because of your amazing segue I cannot separate the modern oxygenation through the butt technique with this old world thought of just like let's just shove some smoke up there <laughs> I'm trying to be like they were right I mean they weren't I mean this was the very very early days uh of the development of CPR like before it was even an idea germinating in the world Here's what was thought of. And again, we, we've covered this before, and I'll see if I can find that episode to link. But they promoted the resuscitation of drowning people by paying four guineas about uh, you were getting somewhere between five to seven hundred dollars to anyone who could successfully revive a drowning victim. That was okay. it. You would just get, you know, a cash reward or I guess donuts if or no, it was France <laughs> croissants. Croissant. Croissant. If you were able to revive, if you pulled somebody out of the river and revived them, you get a payout, uh, especially so that incentivized everybody to learn how to use these machines. So volunteers within this society as it formed soon began using the latest and greatest methods, uh, which, of course, were the tobacco smoke. And in order so people could easily remember what to do, they came up with a little rhyme. Would you like to know it? Yeah. Fire away. Tobacco glister, that's an enema. Tobacco glister, breathe and bleed. Keep warm and rub till you succeed. And spare no pains for what you do may one day be repaid to you. I don't know if that's <laughs> charming or threatening. <laughs> Are you saying if you if you do the tobacco glister to someone else, hopefully someone else will give you a tobacco glister? If you're ever found drowning, yes. Sure, sure. Which trend ended up dying out around the mid-18, early to mid-1800s when they discovered that nicotine was actually rather toxic to the cardiac system. So the popularity (laughs) of blowing smoke up somebody's behind, or tobacco smoke specifically, became a thing of the past. Well, there was some interesting things here, right? You are, you're warming the person up. That's true. If you're dying from hypothermia, warming may help. Um, there, there is stimulants in the tobacco. Uh, so there's going to be something there that can, 
you know, kind of get you moving if you're maybe on the cusp. So I can imagine, Josh, that like if you went into the Thames and you weren't doing so, so bad, but you, you know, you were probably recoverable, you know, if you warmed them up by the fire anyway, <laughs> but giving them an extra little kick in the pants with, you know, some tobacco smoke up the butt, uh, Probably, you know, from time to time, I guess it would have worked. I guess it comes back to our first story of the day. Do you mm. feel lucky, punk? Yeah. Well, <laughs> do you? And that's the main thing, right? Like, if we really wanted to find out, we would have to do smoke versus no smoke. And I don't know that any institutional review board today would approve this study. I don't know. Institutional review boards have gotten really bored lately looking over the studies from this week. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't think they've gotten all that bored. I wouldn't be so sure. You can oh, sweet talk boy. an institutional review board into most anything these days. Okay. <laughs> but that's it for I, this week. Well, that's, that's not true. <laughs> that's it for this week, but since we are starting to be able to travel a little, a little, mm. at least a in little. America, I yeah. figured it's time to start bringing back just the tip. So, uh, Santosh, you again found this one. Lots of help this week. And why don't you tell <laughs> us about this great tourist place that we can't go to or shouldn't? From the BBC News World Europe, if you are able to get to Romania... Okay, and this is going to be a little odd because if you want to go to Romania, we advise you to please don't. get vaccinated before you go. We but advise you to don't because right now, <laughs> right now, Romania, lovely country and people, though they may be, yes, has okay. one of the highest vaccine hesitancy rates in, <laughs> in Europe and is pretty it, it, high it is up true. It is true. in so the world as you, well. So yeah. you are you are highly at risk of being exposed to yes. all sorts of different variants and other ones. COVID-19. So in order to help combat and diminish that vaccine hesitancy and make it safe for people to visit, which again we do not advise, Santosh, yeah. take it away. Yeah. <laughs> So if for any weird chance you go to Romagna, and of course, while you're there, you must visit the 14th century Braun Castle, which is the ancestral home, I believe, of Count Dracula way back when. So if you decide to go over there, and this is, you know, the, the famous Vlad the Impaler that, you know, that we base modern Dracula tales on. So you go there, you get to see the castle and everything. But they said, hey, you know what? We're opening up to tourists and there's people who are coming here and they're happy and they're coming here to get spooked and stuff. Let's put a needle in them. So, <laughs> so uh, the the folks who actually run the castle, which I believe is is state run or or uh, nationally run over there, uh, they said, "Hey, come have a tour of the castle and and, and enjoy the beautiful ambiance of this really neat piece of history, and then you know get yourself a, a COVID nineteen jab." and Absolutely, Josh. I think this is wonderful. This is, you know, people want to go there. 
They they want to see the castle. It's an amazing tourist spot. It's beautiful. And at the same time, they said, all right, if you have any hesitancy, we have people here who are licensed to not only give the jab, but educate you in whatever way you want to talk about hesitancy or if you're worried about efficacy, anything you like. And I, Josh, I hope that this works like gangbusters. This looks awesome. Well, for those of you currently in the country, in every single weekend in May, uh, and possibly to be extended, anybody can turn up without an appointment to get a jab. And as soon as you are jabbed, you get free entry to the castle's exhibit of 52 medieval torture instruments. <laughs> Under the principle that a shot is, I don't even know. But, <laughs> but, no, it's okay. it's okay. Put it together. But it's a cool. minor... A minor correction, Santosh. Uh, 14th century Castle Braun was not the home of Vlad the Impaler. Um, Although he is believed to have visited there at least once. Uh, I don't know, maybe maybe for a dinner. It is, however, believed to have inspired Bram Stoker as the basis for Castle Dracula. Got it. Oh, I'm so sorry. So it is is a place of literary significance and dubious historical sure uh, sure but sure really who doesn't want to but listen they'll still walk around like you know wearing fangs and presumably letting you call the maintenance staff the- igor <laughs> i don't think any of that is true no, no these are you never know until you try actual- but no but, these are historians try because <laughs> you know again right now you shouldn't be going to romania that's true that's true so if we have fans uh, who are over in Europe, anybody who are in Eastern Europe, if you're going to visit Romania anyway, because you know you're taking a holiday or something like that, you still haven't gotten your shot. Um, they're using uh, Pfizer BioNTech, which is now very, very well proven, down to age twelve uh, here in the United States. So it, it, it is a well studied safe and effective vaccine. So please do get your, you know, beautiful vacation and at the same time, start your vaccine series. Don't forget that second jab 21 to 28 days later. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in research in this show. And until next time, as always, wear a mask, wash your hands, get your vaccine, (laughs) stay safe, and if you can, and you've got somewhere to go, happy travels. Bye, everybody. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.